Today's episode is sponsored by Panacea Financial. Panacea is a new financial services company that is making banking better for doctors. Now, it's kind of a unique niche. And the story behind Panacea, it's interesting. It was founded by two doctors who, when they were residents, were rejected for loans by traditional banks. And doctors have a unique financial life cycle that really doesn't fit the mold of normal financial calculators. And frankly, traditional banks don't always understand the acute needs of physicians. You get generic loans, you get high interest rates. I mean, come on now. If you're a fourth-year med student, a resident, an attending physician, Panacea Financial is a bank that is designed specifically for you. For example, they have something called the PRN personal loans. Clever, right? PRN, so you have access to money when you need it. But then what happens when there's a big and especially unexpected expenditure? Throw it down on your credit card. I mean, that's the as-needed default. Maybe gotten a fender bender or other big expenditures like board exam fees, interviews, relocation costs, or even consolidating credit card debt. And those things can pack a punch. The PRN loan's interest rate is less than half the rate of a normal credit card, and you can get it in as little as 24 hours after loan approval. And there's no cosigner requirement, there's no credit score requirement for approval, and you get round-the-clock service. I mean, middle of your night shift, boom, they got your back. And with Panacea, you get a free checking account, you get a personal banker, there's branchless banking in all 50 states, you can use your ATM in any part of the U.S. Panacea is going to reimburse you any ATM fees you incur. As a physician, you should be focusing on your patients, not worrying about money. That's why every aspect of Panacea Financial is designed to be quick, easy, and affordable. So if you're ready to declare financial independence from traditional banks, go to panaceafinancial.com today and check them out. Panacea Financial is a division of Sona Bank, who's a member of the FDIC. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, my friends. For those of you coming back, welcome back. And if you're new to the show, it's great to have you. Our guest today is Stimulus regular Dr. Christina Shenvey who you might remember from the episodes on procrastination and acting with agency. And today we're going to speak with Christina about something I think that is really germane this time of year, especially with setting goals for the coming year, and that is habits, how to adopt good habits, or at least habits you want to start, and equally important, if not more so, how to shed the habits you don't want, which we know can be a much bigger task. We're going to get into willpower, how that works, how it impacts habit formation, and how knowing about the cognitive machinery of willpower can then aid you in building it and using it wisely. I'm not going to go into the full bio on Christina. We will have that in the show notes. We've done it many times, but I will say this as something new, and it's pretty cool. She has started a time management workshop, and I'm going to be taking that next month. We'll also link to that in the show notes. Now, one thing to note, we're going to start this conversation talking about food and certain habits around food. And I recognize that food can be a really sensitive topic. And the intent here is most certainly not to shame. 
We're not trying to cookie shame, not trying to ice cream shame anyone or suggest that they should never eat sweets. We're using food as an example and as a metaphor for other immediate gratifications and frankly, because it's what's in the literature. All right, on to our conversation with Dr. Christina Shenby, Willpower and Habits. I once heard someone ask advice. It was something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't know how to stop this bad habit. I eat a pint of ice cream every night before bed. It was, it was something like that. I remember it was a pint of ice cream, but it was something that was not not good for health. And I think it was like Ben and Jerry's or Haagen-Dazs. Mm, good not stuff. The quote unquote good stuff. <laughs> he said, it's become a habit and I want to stop doing it, but I just can't stop doing it. And then the other person, I think this is like a podcast host was who was like reading this letter said, well, here's the easy thing. Just don't eat ice cream before bed. <laughs> so simple. <laughs> so simple. And then the person's response was, you know, well, I don't have the willpower to do it. And then the response was, well, that makes no sense. Just stop eating ice cream and then you won't eat ice cream. And I was thinking, well, what exactly is willpower? You know, I, I know some people who can just, okay. Like we had Salim on recently and he said, I'm going to do in this diet and I'm doing it and I'm done. And he did it. He said, okay, I'm starting this exercise program and boom. And he's got what he describes as stubbornness, but <laughs> I think he actually has a lot of willpower. And, you know, I think others feel that they don't have the willpower and they can't like resist that temptation or make that change stick. And I, I know we were going to talk about habits, but I feel like willpower is a big part of that. Doing something actually this quote I love is discipline is doing something you don't want to do like you love doing it. Mm, I like that. So let, let's start talking about willpower. Like what is willpower? And do, do people have different levels of that or is that a misconception? Yeah, this is such a great topic because you're right. Just saying, hey, stop eating the ice cream. It's like, <laughs> oh, you come to me and you want to, you know, be an Olympic runner. And I'm like, Rob, no problem. All you got to do is run faster. Well, that's technically true. But strategically, it's completely insufficient, right? And willpower is actually part of what's called self-regulation. Self-regulation has four components, and it's basically the ability we have to do things that we kind of don't want to do in the moment. So, for example, with the food comparison, you walk downstairs and you see this piece of cake left over from last night, and you're like, oh, I want cake for breakfast, but then part of you says, no, I also want to be healthy. I'm also having a, on a diet or I'm trying to run a marathon or whatever it is. So when you have that motivational conflict of both, I want to eat the cake and I don't want to eat the cake, self-regulation is how you resolve it in favor of those long-term goals. So self-regulation has four components, one of which is willpower, but the others, just to put it in, in framing, are standards. So you have to have a standard or a goal that you're looking for that you want to act in alignment with. And then you have to have the motivation. So in terms of Salim's example, you may have lower willpower, but if you have lots of motivation, that can carry you forward. Or if you have lower motivation, but high willpower, that can carry you forward. So standards, motivation, willpower, and then monitoring or metacognition, which is saying, okay, here are my goals. This is what I want to be doing. How well am I doing it? But willpower is kind of the key 
component there for what you're talking about. And there's actually some really cool experiments that have been done on willpower. So they took these people, I know this sounds like horrible torture, but they took a group of people, this was before, you know, ethics and all that, they put them in a room and they put them- I don't them, know why we're laughing in advance because I know not, this is going to be horrible. It's not, no, it's not, it's not. They put them in the room with these fresh, wonderful, gooey chocolate chip cookies. And they made them come in hungry, so they hadn't eaten for a few hours, and they sat them down there. The, the aroma of the cookies is filling the room. It smells like just comfort and happiness in your grandmother's house. And they told them, don't eat the cookies. And they had another group where they put them in the room with the cookies, and they said, go ahead, eat as many cookies as you want. Then they took both groups of people and subjected them to tests of willpower. And the tests are also kind of mean. They have them do these math problems or puzzles that really have no solution. And what they're testing is how long do you spend doing it before you give up? And what they found is that the group who sat there resisting the chocolate chip cookies despite their hunger and despite the wonderful smell, those people had less reserve of willpower to put towards the math test or the puzzle. So they gave up much sooner than the group who had a cookie and then did the test. So it's not about eating the cookies. The key is that your willpower is a limited resource and you use it up and and then it's gone. When you use it up in one area, that transfers over to other areas. So if you resist the cookies, then you have less willpower towards, say, being nice to your spouse or being nice to your family or whatever else it may be. So my brother has some of the most incredible willpower, I guess you could say, of, of anyone. Out there. He, he wanted to start a diet. And this was years ago. And he said, okay, I want to be this physically fit. I want to get to this weight. I want to change my diet this way. And you know, usually when you try to take a big bite of something, the less successful it is, right? If you, The more big moves and the fewer micro moves you make, chance of failure, much higher. But he changed his diet in a day and it was a dramatic change. He started working out like a monster. He became fit. His diet was healthy. And it's been years and he just stu- he, he started it one day and he stuck with it. And also, I've got friends who will start a diet and it's like, I don't know. All right. A month, month later off of it as, I don't know, I couldn't keep it, didn't work for me. And then that repeated pattern, repeated pattern, repeated pattern. And granted, my brother is stubborn, but he's got willpower and he's done that with musical instruments. He's done that with being a a filmmaker. He's like all of these things. It's just, okay, my discipline is focused. I don't know what the word is and I don't know what this, this skill is. And he's able to maintain it for years. And so like, what's the difference between those people? I think there can be a number of things, but I think you answered your question without knowing it, which is that he's done this with a lot of other (laughs) things. So willpower is like a muscle. When you don't have a big muscle, you don't go to the gym and try to bench press 300 pounds, right? It's just not going to work. You're going to hurt yourself and you're going to fail. You're going to give up. So if you haven't built up that muscle of willpower and you say, I'm going to go vegan and start meditating and also, you know, drink only water and all these things you take on too much, that's like trying to go to the gym and bench press 300 pounds when you've never lifted weights before. But if you're someone who it sounds like your brother is, who has a pattern of discipline and has built that willpower over time, then you can potentially take on big things and stick to them. And I think the stubbornness helps, which I'll, I'll classify stubbornness in the motivation category too. <laughs> but, but what happens is, you know, we take on so much and we have that limited resource of willpower. So imagine like every time you try to do something difficult, 
you have a jug of willpower and you pour a little bit out. So every time you resist the cookies and instead you eat the kale, you are pouring out some of your willpower. And then by the end of the day, you feel so depleted. And so then you binge on the Ben and Jerry's and the Haagen-Dazs. Whereas over time, you can both build the pitcher, so create more willpower, and you can learn tricks or habits so that you don't drain your willpower all day. Because once it's drained, two things happen. One, you feel those temptations more strongly. So if you're hungry and you're drained at the end of an overnight and I put something tempting in front of you, you will feel the urge for it more strongly and you'll have less reserves to say no. So my guess is that your brother has built up his willpower picture over time. I'm going to challenge that in a moment because I'm going to talk about if there's ways to build it, deliberate ways to build it up or doing it with intent. Oh, that, like, there you go. The uh, mission of this podcast to be able to do it with <laughs> intent. with intention. And, and focus. Yeah. So before we do that, what, there was like some experiment in the 70s, like with marshmallows and kids and then how they did in life. Yeah. Like that this, this might be something that's kind of interwoven into your fabric that sort of has like this determinism. I don't know if determinism is the right way. What was it? What happened there? Yeah, so that was a great set of experiments back in uh, 1972 by Walter Mischel. He was a Stanford psychologist. And, you know, another food-based experiment, not quite as mean, but he put kids in a room with a marshmallow and said, you can have this marshmallow now or wait 15 minutes, which for kids, that's a long-term, that's like a long-term goal, waiting 15 minutes. You wait 15 <laughs> have you minutes. The, have, you seen, have you seen the video of this Yeah, thing? they're adorable. Yeah, the poor kids are like working so hard to resist. So, so you can resist the marshmallow, and then in 15 more minutes, you'll get a second marshmallow, and then you can have two. And then they looked at these, who are the two marshmallow kids, years down the line. And those kids who were willing to wait for the second marshmallow, they had higher SAT scores, they had more success, they had lower BMIs, all sorts of measures of success and, and productivity and health and et cetera. So that has been a lot of the basis for those early experiments on it's not really just your intelligence that determines your success. So much more of it comes down to your self-regulation and your willpower. Would tenacity kind of be part of willpower? Yeah, you know, I I haven't seen tenacity used as a term in the literature, but I think that goes along really well with the idea of grit, of sticking to something, the passion and perseverance that Angela Duckworth writes about. I think that would go along with that. And probably also the stubbornness. It's funny that uh, you hear this like, yeah, grit, grit, grit's good. Grit's good, man. It's <laughs> it's a good thing. Willpower's good. Grit's good. It's, I, they're all they're all part of they're the all same. They're all related. They're all part of the same pot. So, how do you build it up? I mean, how do you set yourself up for success with willpower? Let's go back. Let's talk about the person who wants to get out of that bad habit of eating the ice cream. They think I don't have any willpower. Yeah, I don't have any willpower for anything. For, for, first off, the self image is is not there to, right. to set themselves up for success. But like, how do they build up their willpower muscle? Well, I think first you have to be aware of it and you have to be intentional about not wasting your willpower. So you don't want to waste your willpower on things that you don't need to. And they've actually done experiments on this and they've looked back at those marshmallow experiments and said, well, what did the people do or what do the kids do who were successful? There are several ways upstream that you can limit the wasting of your willpower. Because every time you walk past that cake or that ice cream on the table, you're dumping <laughs> some of your lemonade willpower out of your pitcher. So what can you do? Well, first, you can select your situations. So if you know you're trying to cut down on sugary foods, don't walk into a bakery, right? So don't go into situations where you know you will needlessly drain your willpower. 
And then other things you can do are change your environment. So maybe not exactly your situation, but your environment. Get rid of the temptation. If that's the ice cream, put it away. Or don't buy it. Or throw it in the trash. Or if it's your phone when you're trying to work, put your phone away. Turn it off. Another thing that kids did that were successful with the marshmallow was they would have selective attention. So they would selectively not pay attention to the marshmallow. They would look at other things or they would, you know, play with their shoes or do play with their fingers, do something to take their mind off of it. And then another trick is what's called cognitive reappraisal. And sometimes it's really just honest reappraisal. Like if you're looking at that tempting food saying, you know what, it's actually probably not going to taste that good, or it's ultimately going to be a disappointment. Like, that's actually true. Or something I've used, which, you know, may gross people out, but when I look at tempting food that I don't want to eat, I look at it and I'm like, you know, it's probably rancid. (laughs) It probably has (laughs) arsenic in it. There's probably something really wrong with it. So I just cognitively reappraise it in my mind, and then all of a sudden it's not tempting. Now I'm not wasting my willpower avoiding the cookies in the break room, and I can save that willpower to deal with challenging situations or deal with emotional situations with patients and things like that. With that cognitive reappraisal, are you kind of attaching a negative tag to something that might have had a a positive or dopamine surge tag to it before. So I'm going to totally make this up. Let's we'll, we'll keep on the ice cream thing. Think, oh, <clears throat> look at that ice cream. You know, so many people have suffered in the making of that ice cream. And I am just contributing to their bad situation. And that company is owned by this horrible person. And I'm supporting them, you know, just kind of, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if that's yeah, that got like therapy. really deep and dark all of a sudden. Yeah, I oh, usually just I, pretend somebody spit in it. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I was thinking like for the for the long term, when you think about that, it's like, well, what do you associate yeah. it with? I don't know if tag is the right word, but instead of, oh, I see that and I know oh, it's going to be really just this. This would be so good. Or another thing that I'll do is ask myself, what is the job I'm asking that ice cream to do? Because it's never oh. just about the ice cream. Oh, wait a second. You know what we tapped, we just tapped into? Oh. That is pure Shenvy right there. <laughs> that is pure Shenvy. So yeah, go on with that. Yeah, what's the job I'm asking this ice cream to do? Am I asking this ice cream to make up for my bad day? Am I asking this ice cream to make up for the fact that I got a patient complaint and I feel really bad? Or am I asking this mindless entertainment to fill the, you know, emptiness and loneliness that I'm feeling right now. So really, a lot of the things that we use to distract ourselves, and those immediate gratifications that undermine our long term goals, we're asking them to do things that they can never do. And then I remind myself, you know what, this mindless entertainment is not going to fill that hole. And I'll feel better if I do something important for myself, like calling a friend or going to exercise or whatever it is. So we've talked about these ways, like, right, here's how to, I don't know, hack it. Here's how to, here's how to hack, hack willpower. But I mean, how do you build that muscle over time? You know, like repeated, like, all right, here's, here's my trajectory. I'm going to be someone who has more willpower. Yeah. So they've done experiments on this. It's pretty cool that you can build your willpower over time. In the experiments that they did, they would have people intentionally try to change some sort of habit. So they would, for example, if there's somebody who swears a lot, they would say, okay, you have to not swear. Or if you slouch a lot, this is me for sure. You got to not slouch. (laughs) So for several weeks, they would have them force themselves to not slouch or not swear or not bite their fingernails or whatever it is. And they would do tests of their willpower before and after. And they would see that through practicing willpower on a daily basis, they were able to build it over those weeks. 
But there's also another kind of cool hack, I guess, which is that once something becomes a habit, it requires a lot less willpower. So to really get yourself to do those difficult things, it works best if you can create a habit around them, like going to the gym. It's so hard at first when you've been you know, home for a quarantine or pandemic and you haven't been to the gym in a long time. It's hard to get yourself to go. But then when you go regularly, it's like, yeah, this is just part of my day. I come home, I put my shoes on, I go to the gym. And it no longer requires any willpower. Oh, I love that segue to habits because this is really what I wanted to get to today was how to form habits, how to get rid of bad habits, more so how to replace habits I don't want with habits that I <laughs> do want. And I really want to know how to get my kids to pick up their oh. dishes and put oh, them man. in the dishwasher. <laughs> okay, so that, that's going to be... I can tell you about habits. I don't know if I can do magic. Okay. <laughs> All right. So how do we create new habits? Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of the times we do it and we're not even conscious of it. Albert Gray had a great little speech he gave back in the 40s called The Common Denominator of Success. And he said, people do not decide their futures. They decide their habits and their habits decide their futures. So our habits are so important. And much of what we do, up to like 40% of what we do is based on habit. For example, how you brush your teeth, how you drive to work, how you get dressed in the morning. And that habits are actually a good thing. Imagine if every morning you had to go through the mental work of, should I brush my teeth? Which hand should I use? Should I go up and down first? Or should I like brush the bottom or the top? That would be cognitively overwhelming to do for every single thing that you have to do in, in the day. So habits help us offload some of that cognitive strain and overload so that we can do things automatically. But become a bad thing if either we don't examine them or we form them unconsciously. For example, if whenever we come home, we plop down on the sofa with a beer and seek those small hits of dopamine from the flickering images on our TVs, we are training our mind that when we feel boredom or sadness or loneliness, that we should react with mindless entertainment and alcohol. And after a short time of doing that, it reinforces itself. And we do that habit loop and it becomes a habit before we've even thought about whether this is how we wanna spend our time. So there's something called the habit cycle that explains how this works. So give me an example of some habit. Let's do checking the phone every five minutes. Yeah, that is such a common one. Yeah. yeah. So I, mean, I like that because, and actually I want to, I want to bring it back to a couple habits I have that I want to change. So let, 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 we're going we're gonna to start easy. We're going to go easy. Yeah, we'll, go, we'll go easy first. So before you can change habits, you have to understand how they work and what they are. And habits occur because of this cycle of cue craving, response, and reward. Sometimes the craving's a bigger component, sometimes it's a less component. But let's say you're minding your own business, doing some important work, you're editing a podcast, and your phone dings. Ding! That is a cue. And now you have a craving. I must check that notification. And you have like an itchiness. People describe like an antsiness or a buzzing feeling that they feel if they don't complete that cycle. If I walk by my phone sitting on the counter... Yeah, it's not even dinging. It's just sitting there. <laughs> I have it for this purpose. I have it on sleep mode. But if I walk by it, I feel like this compulsion mm -hmm. to like, gotcha, and turn it on <laughs> and just see like, oh, what kind of messages did I get? It's like when there's a 
display or something that says do not touch and you're like I must touch it (laughs) yeah so you have the cue whether that's just seeing the phone or the notification and then you have a craving because you must see what's going on there and then the response is you pick up the phone and look at it and the reward is now that feeling goes away now you don't feel that itchiness or that discomfort or that curiosity or that worry about what's going on who texted me and that reinforces the cycle because that reward of now feeling relief and more calm reinforces the cycle that whenever you see that cue, you've got to do that response. Or the reward could be a little bit more dopamine of like, oh, I got a like on this thing or oh, right. I got a text message oh, or email yeah. from this person. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the the likes are so insidious because they're never enough. And there's mm-hmm. actually apps out there that will mask how many people have liked a post so that you're not then rechecking it and seeing, oh, has anyone else read this? Has anyone looked at my pictures? <laughs> because it is so addictive. And it's almost, you know, those experiments where there's the variable reward. If you have a rat push a lever and sometimes it gives you a treat and sometimes it doesn't, that reinforces the habit so much more strongly um, because now you never know. It's like a slot machine. Who knows? Maybe I'll win a like. Maybe I'll win an email or whatever it is. Congratulations. You've won an email. <laughs> Let's keep on this particular one since it's so pervasive and universal with the phone. Then I want to come back to a couple of other habits. So you've got this cycle of checking your phone every five minutes or, or, or however, or checking for likes on a post. I think they're all, they're all kind of the Very same similar. thing. They're all interacting with the same technology. So how would you change that? And I guess as I think about it, is it better to just whatever, I don't know what exercise you're going to say, but is it better to just get rid of it or is it better to replace it with something? I think it's easier to replace it with something than to just stop a habit completely. And the first step is really examining it. You know, as Socrates said, okay, to be a little cliche, the unexamined life is not worth living. So we have all these habits that form part of our unexamined life. And we need to make them conscious first to even be aware of them. But then look at, okay, what is the cue? When am I feeling that craving? What response do I have? And what is the reward? And then you can think about each of those steps and how to disrupt them. So for example, for the cue, one easy way is just just turn the phone off, put it away, lock it in a drawer, put it somewhere else so that you're not having that cue all the time. Now you can't do that every time. Sometimes you have to have your phone with you or whatever the temptation is. So then think about, okay, when I have that cue, what is my response? How can I change my response? So instead of the response of picking it up and looking at it, my response will be, I will stand up, stretch, have a drink of water, sit back down, take a deep breath. So every time I feel that cue of the notification or the temptation, that will be my new response instead of the response of picking up my phone. Now that takes a lot of willpower. It does. It does. But once you create the habit around it, then it becomes easier. And you can use what's called implementation intentions. So there's a lot of great research around positive thinking and how it doesn't work. So just thinking positively about like, I want to be a marathoner or I would like to be a skilled metallurgist. And you visualize yourself as this skilled metallurgist and how wonderful you're doing your metallurgy. And it is actually unmotivating to do just that. But if you look at that goal and then say, okay, what are the obstacles, the inner obstacles to doing that? And then make a plan. And that's called mental contrasting with implementation intention. So it's a big fancy word. But basically saying the inner obstacles to breaking this habit are that I have trouble resisting that urge. So then you would make an implementation intention that's phrased like this. When 
I feel that urge or that obstacle, then I will do action X. So when I feel that craving for picking up my phone, then I will take a deep breath and have a drink of water. Or when I feel like sitting down and doing nothing instead of going to the gym, then I will put on my shoes and walk for five minutes. So you create a plan so that you're not having to deal with it in the moment when you're feeling that desire. And this is, I think, the willpower because your brain is wired for that. Your reward center, your pleasure center is wired for for something. And think, okay, well, I've got this plan. I'll do this other thing. I will, um, I'll, I'll take a deep breath and stretch. I love that. But it's hard to to do that when you think like, oh, it's just so satisfying. Even though I know I'm going to feel worse <laughs> at the it. end I'll for picking later. this thing. Up. So there's the space between stimulus and response, right? The stimulus of the phone being near you and seeing it and the response of grabbing it and then creating that space for the other response. How does that happen? Is it just, is it just kind of, is it that great? It's just, I'm going to do it. Is that what has to happen? Well, it's both. So the research on implementation intention shows that when you pass control of a behavior onto the queue, so when this queue happens, then I will do that, it reduces the amount of willpower that you need. So you have less ego depletion. And it's a process called strategic automatization, which basically means you're strategically forming a habit so that you do it automatically. You're not going to be perfect at it, but creating a plan and identifying exactly what you want to work on can help you in the long term kind of make incremental changes. The other thing that you can do is think about not just the action that you want to change or the habit that you want to change, but what is the identity that you want to have? So for example, if you're thinking about, well, I want to be, I want to be able to run a 10 mile race. So not just the outcome of I want to run 10 miles, but how can I think about the identity of I want to be a runner? Or when you're thinking about the phone example and the distractions from productivity, focus not just on, I don't want to check my phone, which is a negative action or an avoidance action, but what do you want to move towards? Well, I want to move towards being a person of discipline and focus. That's the identity that I want to create for myself. And then I reinforce that identity every time I choose the right option in my habit loop. Okay, let's get personal here. When I'm on the computer, I'm on the computer a lot during the day, and I feel my attention flagging. Sometimes I'll get up and I'll go have some trail mix, which is okay. <laughs> Good stuff. And I like to trail mix. Is it Gorp or trail mix where you live? Because that's it's a regional both thing. actually. Pe- pe- huh. People use it both. It's uh, <laughs> well, it's I get it at Trader Joe's, so it's called trail mix. But when I was little, I was on the East Coast, which is Gorp, mm. and so it it's both. But it's it's trail mix. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Gragnola. <laughs> but what I really do is, and I did this with when I had dictations to do back in the day of dictations, I did the same thing. This, this has been a habit, Dr. Shenvi, <laughs> for 20 years. So I, my, my mind would flag a little bit, or I would be procrastinating <laughs> the thing, which we've talked about procrastination before, and I'll get on to, and here's the cycle. Rotten Tomatoes, mm-hmm. ESPN FC, which is their soccer channel, a news channel, mm-hmm. although not anymore. I don't really check the news anymore, but like that's that's like, and then sometimes as I'm sitting there, Rotten Tomatoes again, 
How many times do I need to look at people talking about movies? And it's, it's you know, it's kind of fun to, you know, check it like once a day or once every couple of days to see what's what. It was not a productive habit. It is not a productive habit. And so what I've wanted to do, and I've tried it in it, and I've started doing the reflexive or reactive internet search less. But what I want to do is when I feel that, when I feel that need, that kind of, it's, it's like an impatience almost. Mm-hmm. You know, I go from focus to unfocused, a little impatience. And like, oh, let me, I'll go search for these things. What I want to do is 25 push-ups mm, each time I feel that. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple of days like, yeah. And I just went and I did it every time, 25 push-ups. It was great. And then I stopped. Mm-hmm. I know the habit I have and I know what I want to replace it with, but doing it has been a challenge. Yeah. So uh, I have several questions for you. Oh, geez, here comes the psychoanalysis. <laughs> well, you 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 brought it up. You opened up your your soul here, so we're just going to yes. keep looking. So, what is the job that you're asking those sites to do? Well, one is this: I want to know what movies are coming out. Mm-hmm. I want to know how the different soccer leagues are doing. So you're curious a, on the surface. Yeah, I'm curious. It's kind of mm-hmm. like the first time I look at them. I'm like, oh, what what's happening? With that well, it's what really leads you to look at them right now in the middle of when you're trying to do your other work, rather than like later when you're just hanging out. Yeah. Why right now? It is an easily digestible distraction. Yeah, it's easy. It's kind of like um, comfort food, mm-hmm. you know. You just kind of like, oh yeah, this is this, this is just like a, yeah. you know, easy so place to be. Yeah, we tend to do that when we're doing work that is either hard or a little bit scary. Like, oh, I'm making this podcast. I don't know what if people don't like it, so we're a little bit nervous about it. Or things that we're worried might fail. Or when it's sometimes just boring tasks like doing our charts or you know our TPS reports or whatever it is. And so then we seek those easy things like checking email or checking Rotten Tomatoes. Well, it's funny you say say with charts. I would I would do that for a long time. But and it was especially when when we used to have to do dictations. And I I would have like twenty dictations to do, which is going to be several hours of it, and I'd be like, oh my god. Yeah. Oh, so don't want to do this. And I'm just like, I'm, how many times can I go through the cycle of these same 10 websites? It's like, and, wait, I'm on and this And we for the rationalize, right? Because we say, oh, I'll do my charts better if I just look at this website real quick. Oh, yeah. I, I kind of needed a break. I, I needed need to let break. my mind rest. Or, yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you a second question now. Sure. What identity do you want to have around your work? Or identities? What things, what types of things are important to you to be? Is this kind of like the identity I have for the public or identity I have for myself? No, for yourself. Um, Specifically around your work and your ability to focus. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't know if this is answering this question. I want to always be authentic in what mm. I'm doing, saying, mm-hmm. thinking. Like thought, word, and deed, I want it to be authentic. That's the guidepost. Might not be what you're asking. Number two is I want to be disciplined in deep work. You know, I have like actually on my calendar, I have these blocks yeah. of, you know, an hour or deep two work. so I can get deep work and creative. I want to be disciplined with that. Yeah. And so you, I I also, if I, I also want to take intentional breaks, which, you know, we had like the art of breathing and all this stuff. And sometimes I'll do that with breathing, but I don't always, but I, I know that it's, I know that it's so much better when I do that. And I also can keep the mental constructs in, in my head much better when I do that. Um, so... I can't remember what I said, but those are the things. <laughs> those that were I great. Be. So you said discipline, yeah. creativity. I want to create yes. great content. I want to create yes. authentic content, content, and I want to be a person of discipline. So you can use those because that's your identity. Actually, one of the things that James Clear says in his book, 
Atomic Habits, he says the identity itself becomes the reinforcer. You do it because it's who you are and it feels good to be you. Isn't that cool? So this habit, it's not just about the external things that you're doing. It's about proving to yourself that you are a person of discipline. You're a person of authenticity. You're a person who has the control over themselves to create the amazing content that you do. So you can leverage that. When you're feeling that cue, that itchiness, that discomfort, that I've just got to check my phone, I've got to check these 10 websites real quick, and then I'll feel better, I'll go back to my work stronger, which is never true, use that. Say, no, I'm a person of discipline, I'm going to focus on what I'm doing. And then create that new habit around either that mental mantra or the physical mantra of breathing. I loved your seg- your segment on breathing, it was awesome. So use some of the breathing strategies or stretch or I know I get so dehydrated during the day, like taking a drink of water. Suddenly I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm not bored. I'm just thirsty. (laughs) So create a new (laughs) habit and leverage that identity that you want to create. I've heard something about linking habits. Like if you Mm want to if you want to make a new habit rather than just putting it out de novo. And actually, I want to get into a couple other habits in a minute (laughs) now that we're, you know, having a full session. Rather than you creating it to Nova, like, oh, I want to stretch every day. I want to be like Sting when I'm in my 60s. And <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> and is there something about linking that to another activity that'll make it stick better? Or is just, you know what, just stretch more? No, absolutely. That's part of, in a way, doing the implementation intentions. And it's something called habit stacking. So you take some habit that you do regularly, say, brushing your teeth. I assume that's a habit for you. You brush your teeth. (laughs) I mean, I'm only on video. I can't see you here, but it's actually quite a ritual. It's, it's, it's brushing. It's flossing. Ah, It's the water. It's the mouthwash. Oh, you got the water. No, no, you know, no mouthwash. My, my dad, I've like, I got a really good buddy who's a dentist. I guess he's probably, he's probably listening to this right now (laughs) and I get all the great inside scoop on the world of dentistry and mouthwash. I'm going to tell you, Dr. Shenvey is a scam. Really? Yeah. No, it's just, it apparently is not really helpful for, unless you're doing like a, I probably, I guess like a real fluoride mouthwash, like a prescription one, but they don't really help your teeth. They give you fresh breath. Mm. And there's some of them, some of the active agents in them turn your teeth gray. And the reason I found out about that is that there was some, you know, like, oh, here's a fluoride mouthwash. And I started using it and I looked in the mirror and my teeth were gray. Oh, I was man. Like, okay. I know it's gross to even say it. And I went to the dentist <laughs> like, my teeth are gray. They said, oh, we, we can, I, I thought they were permanently gray, you know, like tetracycline yeah. teeth. Or, and they cleaned them off. They said, never use mouthwash again. It's a scam. Well, I'm so, so glad anyway, we did this ma- podcast just for that pearl right there. Dude, I, I would buy mouthwash at Costco in bulk. You know, oh, wait a second, I get three gallons <laughs> Maybe that's this your problem. You weren't, you weren't supposed to chug it. <laughs> well, okay. So there you are. You've got your fantastic dental hygiene routine. It is a great nightly ritual, yeah. <laughs> After your 20-minute dental hygiene routine, (laughs) what you would do is stack your new habit of stretching on top of that. So that I'm going to just tell you, my my wife and I went away into the woods last weekend. I take a travel water pick with me. Oh, your wife must be a very special individual. (laughs) She she is. She is. She is the best human being I'm I know sure. in many ways. I just want to say that, yeah. <laughs> so, so you you get your you get your dental hygiene plan done. Then you do, <laughs> then you do your stretching. So you stack that habit. That way, it's much easier, and it creates takes a lot of the work out from the initial habit formation of trying to do something new. Is you say, okay, after I brush my teeth, I always do this, or. After I wake up, I immediately put on my running outfit so that then I'll go for a run. Because otherwise you feel kind of stupid walking around like eating breakfast in your running clothes. So 
Habit stacking is one good way to take some of the activation barrier out of creating a new habit. Right. I guess it's like the kindling and you use this other kindling to make your fire. Exactly. That's great. One thing that I often wanted to do, but just didn't put into my workflow in the emergency department. And, th- and this is going to be this micro esoteric thing, but I was, I was interviewing someone for ERCast the other day about documenting in the room and it's documenting the updates, which actually I think makes for a, like a much more robust chart of like, oh, I'm in the room at this time, this timestamp, this is happening, this is the plan, this is the discussion. And most of the EMRs these days have that capability that you can do an update. And this will make my charting so much better because then my whole decision making is already done because I'm doing it in real time and it's not going to take that much longer. And I could never do it. I probably did it 10 times ever. <laughs> and, and I saw people that did it. I, I worked with people that did it and it was fantastic and they were super efficient. Their charts were gorgeous. My documentation was really nice and it went through this beautiful MDM, but there was a lot of duplication of stuff. It wasn't really clear exactly when were these things happening that I was talking about. So those real time patient updates in the chart, it's kind of the opposite of not picking up your phone. You know, it is, no, do pick it up do it. and do, do and do do this right now before you leave. Yeah. Well, Rob, I'm going to, we're going to solve your problem here today, but I'm going to make you do a little <laughs> difficult thinking and some introspection. Okay. So I love that you said this is your wish because the framework that I'm going to use is based on work by Gabrielle Oltingen and uh, her mental contrasting with implementation intentions. Okay. So we're going to apply this right here, right now. Okay. So what was your wish around your charting? My wish was to be more efficient. Okay. And specifically, what did you want to have done? Uh, how do you mean? Like you wanted to have updates on every patient before oh, you yeah. leave the ED. I wanted to, when I left the room, because you could log into the computer and just access the patient's chart. I wanted to have real-time patient updates in my workflow, of like my physical workflow of walking in and out of the room. And what outcome would that do for you? How would that make you feel? Say you did that perfectly, like you leave your shift, every update is done, the chart looks beautiful, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning chart. (laughs) How would that make you feel? A couple things. Number one, cognitively offload from having Mm. to remember at the time of documentation, which was usually right before the patient was discharged. And then you sometimes you've got five people that had the exact same chief complaint and all this. And it's like, well, what actually happened? And when did it happen? So number one is cognitive offload. Number two is happier at the end of the shift because then you're not having to go back and tidy things up and remember. And you know, there's always some documentation to do. I would say happier. And I'm going to, you know what? As I think about it, frankly, more joy mm-hmm. in the day of work because- Documentation is one of, if not the albatross of an emergency <laughs> medicine shift. Yes. There you go. Joy. I like it. Joy. <laughs> so so that outcome, that fantastic utopian outcome of feeling mentally free, because you don't have yes. all that stuff rattling around in your head. And that's actually something called the Zygarnik effect, which when you have an open loop or something that you haven't finished it creates a mental tension in your mind. So you have all these balls bouncing around in there. So you want to feel happy. You want to feel mentally free, cognitively unloaded. Instead, you're in your current situation feeling not free, not joyful, cognitively loaded up. So what inner obstacles are you facing that you would have needed to do 
to get that outcome. Not like, oh, the ER is too busy, people keep asking me things, coronavirus, whatever. What are the inner obstacles? So the inner obstacle was that I always felt pulled by the multiple other tasks. You're task saturated by definition. And I felt pulled by them that I needed to go and address mm-hmm. them. Even though, you know, obviously if something is emergent, somebody's shot, having a heart attack or whatever, sorry, you're not going to be doing patient right. updates. Not going to be doing there. the albatrossing. Right. But 95% of the time, that's not the it's case. Not. 95% of the time, it's just, it's work a day in your comfort zone of, of flow and movement. Yeah. Even if I was interviewing a patient and they started kind of going long and it was this wandering history, I would be thinking, oh my gosh, I've got... I've got that patient with chest pain in the other room that I need to go reassess. And I know that this consultant's going to be calling back. And this kind of like, okay, the the mental tasks would kind of be this inner voice. And it wasn't just it wasn't a lovely inner voice. <laughs> it never it almost never is. <laughs> so the obstacles are things like you are thinking the thought, I have to go do all these other things. Even yes. though most of the time that's not true. So because you're thinking it, you believe it's true. That's something called cognitive fusion. You're fusing with that thought and you're believing it's true just because you're thinking it, even if it's not true. So what actions would you have to take? This is the last step. What actions would you have to take to overcome those inner obstacles or what things would you have to do? I think that it would have taken actually doing the update documentation to prove to myself that the emergency department was going to explode and things would be okay. Because <laughs> yeah. right? there's, and it's funny, as I say it, I can feel a physical tension pulling me out of the room. Mm-hmm. Like, you got to go, you, you got go. to go. Yeah. Or let's think about it this way What tangible action would you have to do to make this happen? You walk into a patient's room, what do you okay. have to do? What's the immediate next step to make this happen? Immediate next step is to. Put my ID badge on the computer. There you and go. Open up, open up the thin client, the 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 representation of my chart in the. That's room. it. So now you can create. Now you have something actionable. You can create an implementation intention around this. So my wish is I want my charts to be perfectly done. My outcome is that I will be cognitively free, happy, joyful, rewarded, proud. And the obstacles are my thoughts. And feeling like I don't have time to put my badge on the reader and open up my electronic health record. So then the implementation intention becomes when I walk into a room, then I will put my badge on the computer. Or when I feel myself being pulled out of the room, then I will ask myself, is the ER actually exploding or do I have time? So you create a plan because you will encounter those feelings again. You will encounter those same barriers, that same tension pulling you out of the room. But now you have a plan for it. I mean, you can even say, okay, here's my link. I open the door, say hello, and say, I'm just going to log into the computer so I can update your chart. Exactly. Exactly. It's that easy. You say it. I say it. it. It's that easy to start. Now, will you do it perfectly every time? No. But you've created that identity of, I want to be a person who does their charts on time. I want to be a person who comes home to a clean slate and a free mind. Mm -hmm. And that identity is important to me. So as often as I can, when I walk in the room, hello, sir, and put your badge on the computer. And I like the idea of making it, that's essentially ritualized. Exactly. With with I do it because 
at the end of the day, you know, like those last two hours of a shift, you're so, I guess you could say ego depleted. Exactly. Yeah. Your lemonade pitcher's like got a drop in it and maybe some dregs from the lemon seeds or something. And then invariably, that's when the mass casualty comes in. And, uh, <laughs> right. You know, ego, ego depletion, baby. Give me some coffee. Yeah. Although and some adrenaline does kind of perk it back up. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so whenever that yes. 6 a.m. major trauma comes in and you are feeling so tired and zombie-like, all of a sudden you're awake, you're ready to go. So the adrenaline can kind of replenish, but only to a certain point. It makes me think of something, a habit I got into at the end of my shifts. It was usually after a night shift or sometimes after a really hard day shift with the oncoming doc. I rarely signed out patients because most of the places where I worked, it wasn't a sign out culture. But before they started, I'd say, hey, let me run some of my patients by you because I knew that I was cognitively depleted. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this, was a, this was like a habit that I, I developed just because I, I found that at the end of a shift, my confidence dropped, even though I think the medicine was good. And one of my attendings in medical school said, he said, yeah, you know, I was working a night shift and I, I had a patient who clearly, clearly, clearly had pneumonia. They were sick. They were probably septic. And in my mind, I was thinking, oh, they look pretty healthy. They're young. They probably have bronchitis. And I saw, you know, I discharged them home and they didn't do so well. So it's like, so now at the end of my shift, I do double checks. That's my habit is I, I run my patients by my partner to say, well, what do you think of this? And you also, you also have to have your partner with the comfort level of, oh yeah, <laughs> you're not going the <laughs> right way because, <laughs> right, because, it, because the other side yeah. of that is people don't want to say like, yeah, you're not doing that yeah. right. They'll say, oh yeah, you're fine, you know, you're fine, you're yeah, fine. You, and that's such a great way of having a habit to overcome our limitations of willpower. In this case, you know, night shifts are so painful and so tired. And I'll do that too. When somebody comes in, I'm like, hey, I've got night brain. I don't know what's going on with this guy. Can you help me out? And that's such a great workaround. And you have to have people who are going to be honest or who will who'll be willing to tell you your idea is not good. Your baby's ugly. you got to have people who have that kind of trust who can tell you that. That's the way I've heard <laughs> it said. I don't know said. about that last one. I don't now, know that metaphorically <laughs> speaking, you have to have people who will be willing to say difficult things in that setting and be open to hearing them too. Okay, how do we get the kids to put the dishes away? How do we make how do we make a habit for somebody who doesn't seem to be invested in in uh, linking, well, linking well, in making a new habit? I'll tell you, Rob. You can only really ever change your habits, just like you can only ever change your own thoughts and your own mind. There are ways you could create an extrinsic habit for them. For example, this is more just behaviorism, but if they put the dishes away, then you give them a reward right? That's going to create a habit loop around putting the dishes away. Or if they don't do it, then they have some consequence. They lose, you know, your kids are older, but for my kids, it's screen time. They lose their screen time. That's your consequence. But it's much more powerful if you can have them develop the identity of, I want to be a person who takes responsibility for my dishes, or I want to be a person who keeps my room clean or puts stuff away. And that part, I think, is much harder. And you, you honestly can't develop it in somebody else. You could have them reflect on it, hey, what does it mean to you? What things are important to you? But you can only change them through extrinsic forces. And I think in the long term, you don't want them to rely on extrinsic forces. You don't want them to have have to have somebody there looming over them saying, if you don't do your homework, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to lose the keys to the car. You want them to be somebody who has the identity of wanting to do it for their own intrinsic rewards. Christina, what a delight. Thanks again. Look forward to the next time. Thanks, Rob. Always so much fun. And that is it for today. Thanks, Dr. Shenby. And thank you for tuning in. 
For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. And there you can also sign up for our newsletter. You can see some videos. You can have, well, you know what? You can just have a barrel of fun. You can subscribe to Stimulus in pretty much any podcatcher you use. And if it happens to be iTunes, throw down a review and rating. I read all the reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.